We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Erwin Valencia. Erwin is the director of training and conditioning with the New York Knicks. NBA in the house, my friends. I love stories of people who aim insanely high and get there. I need to hear these stories. And so I was very excited when Erwin accepted the invitation to come on the podcast and share his story, which turned out to be even crazier than I anticipated. Erwin is a physical therapist, he's a strength coach, sports scientist, mindfulness coach, social entrepreneur, and an international speaker. He's a true citizen of the world, and it's hard to even compress his biography into a reasonable sentence. From nonprofit rehabilitation programs in the Philippines, to sports clinics in New York, to Major League Baseball, to startup communities in Silicon Valley, to dance studios all over the world, to developing sports medicine in Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe, to the Medicine Square Garden and the NBA. And clearly, Erwin is just getting started. Here's part one of our chat, where we talk about his childhood and growing up as a third culture kid in his home country of Philippines. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My first usual question is, where did you come here from and when? And I know it's a complex question with you, so let's break <laughs> it down. I know. I'm a third culture kid. So for me, I, I've been everywhere. And uh, uh, first and foremost, by the way, thank you for having me. Uh, I know on, on imagine the crazy connections that occur on Clubhouse and, and people just finding each other and not knowing whether the person on the other side of that voice is actually going to be a good person or not. And, and normally I think we're blessed to be able to have the ability to check each other's vibes because of the voice, as opposed to pictures. And, exactly. and I think this definitely makes a big difference. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, to answer your question, if you, if you really look back on when I moved to the U.S., it started when I was first born here, but because we didn't stay here in the true systematic fashion, I came back here fully, so to speak, with quotation marks in 1999. Um, I'm very blessed to, to be both a to be both a U.S. citizen that was born here, but also growing up in the Philippines and other parts of the world for a long time, so that then I was really not as American that grew up here compared to everyone else. That I when I moved here in 99, it was like being an immigrant again even though the only the thing that separates me and a lot of my colleagues, particularly in physical therapy I went to school with in the Philippines, was that I had an American passport. But all our experiences were exactly the same. 
except, you know, like I said, the only difference is that they had to go through agents uh, for them to get jobs. I didn't because I had an American passport, but I still had to like get an internship on my own. I didn't have a school that I was connected with. They didn't have placement services. I had to like find all of these on my own. And obviously as with anything else, it was, it was a challenge, but, um, but that was 1999. But prior to that, you know, my life was very complex. It growing up between the Philippines, um, you know, living in Japan, living in Indonesia, uh, spending time in Switzerland, um, and then living in San Jose, California. And a lot of it has kind of brought me different experiences. And even if you say that when I was in that third grade, that eight years old situation, when I first moved to the, the US on my own, where my parents sent me here, that was, if you could call that immigrant experience as well, where you know, I was eight years old. I, I was alone. I was, you know, my family is back in the Philippines, but I was living with my godfather and his family and my cousins and life was good. But it had to do with the, with the political situation. In the yes. Yes. And all that had to do with the political so situation. In the what happened there? And it was, a, it's a huge decision to send away a child from away from yourself to the other side of the world. Like I cannot even imagine what your parents <laughs> went through and you as a kid. That must have been I, you know, crazy. You know what's funny is I didn't even think the craziness of it. Um, you know, I didn't even know until I was 18 what the biggest reason why they sent me over and what led to that decision that even though it felt so, it, my parents felt it was abrupt. I, I didn't think it was abrupt because I maybe I just wasn't aware of, of the craziness. Um, all I know is that, you know, one day my you know, my parents told me to, to pack some stuff and it felt like a natural progression. We've, I finished school first and, or was able to finish school. Um, because maybe it was like about the summertime. And by the time my parents sent me as an eight year old kid on a flight where my mom and dad went to the, my mom brought my dad and I to the airport from Davao city in the Philippines and then brought us to Manila. And then in Manila, my father, um, handed me off to a Japan Airlines flight attendant um, to, to take me away. And I thought it was like an adventure. Uh, you know, my, my, my grandfather, my, my godfather was like, took me in. He was very, took me in. And, you know, even though my mom obviously cried, my dad was, was a little sad. You know, I looked at the flight attendant and I'm like, nice. What's up? Like, how you doing? <laughs> I bet. You know? Yeah. I was eight and she was this beautiful, like Japan flight attendant. She was took care of me held my hand i'm like yeah what's up <laughs> that's you know life. I'll, I'll be uh i'll be uh i'll be 18 in about 10 years so. <laughs> i got you you know i felt like joey from friends you know i was like but oh, i was eight hilarious. um and then i remember being on the plane and you know i would sit i was sitting in the, there was the 747s and that, there was the four four seats on each side and then like five in the center or something like that and i sat on like the edge at one seat here on the center island and obviously the flight attendant would always check on me gave me little like you know planes that i could play with and, and coloring pad and i remember people around me going like little boy are you by yourself and i'm like yeah and it's like wow well if you need anything please let us know like the little ladies that are like right next to me and i go yeah i want your bread so if you're, if you're not eating your bread, I'm going to take your bread. <laughs> I love it. I think that really, that is really uh, telling about you. Like you do know what you want. 
<laughs> I, I think it's funny. Obviously, I, I, I go in a, in a bit of a shadow of, of humility, but then when there's something, I, and I use my cuteness to be like, well, I'll take your bread. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's a weird request, but okay. You know, because <laughs> you offer, you know, when you're in a, you know, economy class and you're by yourself and, you know, you get the little plastics with the bread on it and stuff. So that was, that was the time. So, you know, I, in my, yeah, my godfather received me the other side and, you know, I felt like it was a, a year and a half of adventure for me. I didn't, uh, you know, there was a big gap between finishing school in, in the Philippines and, and starting school in the U.S. And um, I was, you know, I thought it was one big adventure. I had a BMX bike club. My, my cousins and I had like a clubhouse. We had like our own little neighborhoods, you know, like crew. Uh, we tortured my little cousins, Cabbage Patch dolls by tying karate belts to their necks and putting them on the electric fans. I mean, and, and I worked and I don't know if this is legal to say this, but I, I worked uh, by, by delivering newspapers at like six in the morning. So, you know, making four twenty-five an hour or something like that, you know? And for me, I felt like that was, I was doing my part. Plus I was learning from my, my, my uncle's family of how it is to be slightly dependent to, have to wash my own clothes and, and wash my own dishes or wash dishes for the family. And, you know, which we didn't have to, as we were very blessed living in the Philippines, you know, the situation there is if you have a little bit, then you have some opportunities to enjoy life a little bit differently. So, but then being in America, it was just me, you know, trying to helping a family that I was just staying in because of, in a sense, a refuge, you know, yeah. for a year and a half, I was eight, eight years old. So, you know, so, and that was, I guess the the first part of the immigrant experience. Yeah. And then the second part of the immigrant experience was, me coming back here after university uh, and coming here by myself with just my bank account and, and two suitcases and, you know, and living um, as, as tightly as possible. And my cousins, you know, two tiny two bedroom in San Francisco where I was living on, living on her couch and, you know, and I was studying for my board exams, you know, and that, that was it. So I was living as frugally as possible. Before jump into that, I do want to go back to Philippines because that's where you grew up. But mm -hmm. in a way, from what I understand, you were a bit of an alien there also for mm -hmm. for some time. And how, can you can you tell me like could you tell me what your life was like there when you? Yeah, you know what's funny being exactly. I think this is the challenge every third culture kid finds themselves in, even though you're Filipino, but then you if you grew up in the Philippines a little bit. So when I came back to the Philippines, you know, for fourth grade, after like a year and a half, I had to first go to a foreigner section, uh, you know, but I'm Filipino, but I was in a foreigner section, you know, for fourth, fifth grade. And then I went to an actual all Filipino school when I was sixth grade. And then that's, that's when, you know, I had a little bit of trouble because now I had to like get better at speaking the language. Now I didn't have a cheat code of having classmates that were from all over the world that spoke English, but now I had to learn Filipino, especially because dudes that would, you know, that would want to fight me would speak in Tagalog and I wouldn't know what they were saying. And I would just swear at them in, in English. And they, they laugh at me. They're like, Oh, this English boy, nobody understands you. Okay. So it, it's really kind of interesting to be the amboy as we call it. And um, you are both revered and hated. It's like you, you know, you're, you think you're too high up for everybody because you speak English, but you're cool to some people because you have some great experiences that they want to learn from. Yeah. So it's, it, it was a double-edged sword. And, and uh, you know, for me, I needed 
in order to simulate, needed to learn the language above all to get better language. Because even when I was younger, before I was eight years old, I learned a different dialect. I learned Bisaya, which was a different dialect from Tagalog. Oh. So it was completely different. And so I had to watch uh, Filipino telenovelas. I had to watch uh, Filipino variety shows. And my parents made sure that our cooks and, and, and nannies and stuff only spoke to us in Tagalog. And that's kind of how I learned. And, and uh, when I was in school, I would always go to the security guard and, and the security guard in gate two, if I remember, um, always had the latest, the, the, the daily issue of a tabloid magazine that had really cheeky column, a column that, that was always every day. And it was always like deep Filipino language of really vulgar things. And <laughs> But I learned it. It's like, you know, yeah, it's really funny. Thing. That's the real language. Exactly. I mean, like they won't, they won't say directly what they would call it, but they would say like, oh, you know, uh, the man climbed mountains and then jumped into the cave, but then said it in Tagalog. And I was like, wow, is this what is made it romantic sounded, but it was quite <laughs> vulgar. And, and I read these articles almost every day I would go over the, and I'd be like, okay, that's, that's what that means. You know? Cause I, I needed to be, I need to understand the lingo and not just proper Filipino, but I need to know what the colloquial was once. Was, was, of so. course. And at that age, that's what, that's all you want to learn yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're and, and by the time, cause I, cause I was six, you know, I was sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, yeah. That was like what, 12 years old, 12, yeah. 13. That was definitely in that stage where you're like, I want to learn about the mountains and the caves, you know, yeah. like, what is this all about? And so, <laughs> That's you know, hilarious. so that was, that was, so that part of my life was very interesting because yes, I was an alien back home because I didn't know what I was going to be. Like I, I, the first two years after coming back from the U S I had a safety net. I was in, I was in the, I was in the, in the, the foreigner section. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I was, it was free, free game. <laughs> and at that point, so what was the, sense of the future did you did you think that you were going to live in in the philippines or did the parents give you give you an idea that you would be moving back to the u.s or what um, was i think inherently we went to the u.s almost every year uh, i think just because i was an american citizen and they wanted to make sure my papers were clean all the time and we had to move back and forth and um and my parents did an amazing job i mean that was a hard thing to do to not only send your kid alone when he's eight, but also have to deal with the paperwork. I think in the Philippines, the worst thing is the paperwork. I mean, having to go and you don't just do it online. You literally have to line up for like two, three hours to get like a piece of paper that says something that just tells you to go to another office, to line up for another two, three hours to get another piece of paper. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge. I commend my, my, my parents for, for really working hard to make sure that even though I was an American citizen, that I was legal to stay in the Philippines while going to school there. Because at that time, we weren't really allowed, I think, to have dual citizenship like we are now. Now we are allowed mm. to do that. So um, so I was a re- I literally was a registered alien in the Philippines. Wow. Really kind of funny That's to say that. crazy. Yeah. Um, which is really kind of funny to say that. And I had no, you know, I was I was a kid. So I didn't even know what that really meant, politically speaking and government wise. All I knew, I did this registration card that I had to make sure that I never lost. My parents like, if you travel you better not ever lose this. And I, I went to multiple exchange programs. I lived in Japan and in Indonesia and I, the passport was with me and nobody else. And so it was, it was my duty to hold it. If I lost that, we would have some big problems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting how, 
um, having to deal with those things uh, at a young age is completely foreign to people who never, you know, the majority of Americans never leave the United States. Yeah. To them, like that, all of those concepts of, you know, passports and bureaucracy, they're just like completely foreign. And I think that um, that partially shapes a different point of view on the world. Mm -hmm. As in, like, you're more aware of its connectedness and separateness. Yep. No, absolutely. I, I think that's why inherently I was, you know, having the passport in my hand by myself gave me a sense of power uh, in a sense. And then, I, and then it made me start dreaming of places that I could go to and how I can go to places by myself. And I think it was this early training at such a young age that then allowed me to be fearless as it relates to travel. You know, back then when there was no internet, there was no influencers, there was no travel guides. The only thing I had was uh, a lonely planet. And even before lonely planet, there was something else. I forgot what it was called. Fodders or something like that. Like frommers, from like literally like uh, to find a hostel in a different part of the planet. You couldn't just call them online. You had to like show up and take a chance whether they had a bed or not, you know, and but that that training came at such a young age for me you know, to like handle these, these uncomfortable situations where you're, you're lining up at an immigration, the, the immigration desk of a separate country that you're not part of, and you're by yourself. Yeah, you know, to be able to know that, you know, yes, I had training wheels being that, you know, the first time I did that, I was going to America, and I was an American citizen. But then, the, you know, when they asked me a question, it's like, why are you by yourself? And number two, why, why were you in the Philippines this whole time? And I, you know, like uh, I said, my parents, I, I like, I, you know, you, but the fact that you're eight and you're answering these questions is right. It's crazy. Well, they cannot not let you in. That's it. Exactly. That's it's like, <laughs> I, have, I, have, I, have a, I have a American passport. So it's like, you're going to let me in, but then you're asking me these questions. I don't know what that, you know, I just that's, say my parents, you know, that's funny, but how did it happen? So that, that your family was kind of between the two countries. So before I was born and, and we go to the beginning here is, my, my father was doing his on-the-job training internship uh, at Nishu EY, which is a big Japanese financial firm after going to business school in Japan. My mom was going to business school in Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey while working as an assistant to my great uncle, who was the town doctor of a little town called Lodi. And um, and then so, uh, you know, they, they were already married before they came here. And so I was born... Um, as they were, you know, completing their program, so to speak. And, and so after that, then we had to, you know, actually had to find ourselves away to Houston and then in turn find ourselves heading back to the Philippines, to Davao City in the Philippines. But, um, but by the time I, you know, was about seven, uh, political unrest was happening in the Philippines and, you know, with the whole Marcos regime coming and, and we were living in a province in the South Island of the, of the country called Davao. And, and, and Davao was a hotbed of a lot of the civil unrest because Davao was, there was a lot of Muslim extremists that were based out of there. But then there were also rebels that weren't Muslim extremists that were just there because they hated the government. It was a hiding place to hide in, in the big mountain. Our, our, the biggest volcano uh, is Mount Apple, which is in Davao. So, so it was kind of like a hiding ground. And then you had like the the student rebels that would also be down there. Those were more, they were less 
they were less violent. They were more kind of, uh, they were, they were just the people that went on strike all the time and stuff. So there's a lot of things going on. And I almost lived my life in a very kind of narcos kind of way. Every time I watch narc, but, but, but not because of drugs, but because of political power. And yeah. The only tie I have to politics is the fact that my grandfather was once a governor of Pampanga, which is a, a province in the main island of Luzon. Um, and he was the secretary of public works and highways. So he helped build the highways to get all the way up, up and down the country. And he decided on Davao because he himself had his own business because uh, he was also a businessman and an engineer uh, before becoming a politician. And his business was uh, log trading between Indonesia and the Philippines. And so Davao was the lowest, the, the southernmost point of the Philippines, and it was the closest thing to Indonesia. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, that's why we were in the Philippines. But unfortunately, that part of Davao, that part of the Philippines, was was really the main hub of a lot of things going on. And because of the fact my father was a former politician, my grandfather, which you know he was already out of it a long time after that but we were still connected to influential families in Davao and we weren't, we weren't by any means the wealthiest. We, we were friends with the wealthiest people in town because we owned the cemetery. And that's interesting family so, business. It, I know, trust me. I, it's, we, we own a cemetery and then it turned out an orchid farm. Why? Cause you need the orchids to bring to the cemetery. So it, it was kind of like a whole thing that revolved around real estate cemetery and orchid farm. And um, that's always and a yeah. solid business. It's all because everyone dies. So you always need a place to rest. Can rely on that, especially in a times of revolution. Very exactly. So, so we always, so, so obviously we knew a lot of influential people because they were all, their grandparents and stuff were all buried in our cemetery. So we, we were by any means, not the people who had the money. We were the people taking care of those people, you know, after they moved, passed on to the next life. And so when my grandfather died and my, when my father took over the business, the rebels or, or insurgents started really casing my family. So I started just watching us in a sense. And even those days where, and I say like narcos, because we, we'd be having a family barbecue, a birthday party, you know, with like plastic chairs and plastic tables and then white cloth on top of it and, and a buffet and, you know, and then next thing you know, and I'm swimming in the pool of a country club. And next thing you know, some guy pulls out a gun from the soda, so the soda, the, the the soda part that he's the guy giving the sodas, and he just pulls a gun out of there and starts shooting in the air. And people are like panicking and going crazy. And and all all they wanted is guns. They didn't want to kill anybody. They just wanted our guns because then they can use it against the government. You know, and and I had no idea. I was in the swimming pool and I stood up from a swimming pool like a movie. You know, I, you know, like a movie, I would, I get up from the swimming pool. All of this is happening. Madness, madness. I get up from a, from a swimming pool. I'm standing there dripping wet going like, what's happening? Everyone's like running, screaming, going down. Duh, duh, duh. And I'm just like, what's happening? And my mom's screaming, get Erwin, get Erwin. Like we need to get him. And I'm just like in the pool going like, what's happening here? And uh, so a lot of stuff, that stuff happened. I, I mean, these are just some visions I have in my head that, I don't even know the the true accountability of things that happened. And then when I asked my parents, you know, they kind of confirmed things. Um, it was really interesting. And so when I was 18, they told me the, all, all the stories. And and the biggest story was the fact that for uh, for a while, my my parents started getting threats of kidnapping. And a big kidnapping was big at that period of time and threats for kidnapping. And because I was the eldest son with the last name that carried my family's last name, that was of of the only... Because my, my father was 
the one that took over the family business. And my aunties didn't have the last name. So even though technically my aunties who were older than my father would technically would carry on the business, but they didn't want to. So my dad was more the business guy. So, so my grandfather gave, you know, handed the keys, so to speak to my father. And because I was the eldest child carrying the last name, you know, I would, I was part of the bloodline. And so, so they started casing me, started sending threats of me being kidnapped. And it wasn't until a day that, um, that my mom, you know, my father said it was a, it was a coffin for a, with a young kid in it, um, with a skeleton of a young kid. But my, my mom said it was a skull that they sent over. So I'm trying to figure out which, which story is, is the right story between my dad's and my mom's, which one was it that, you know, that had a letter in it that they're saying I'm next. And it was in that moment in time that packed our bags. And within that week I was gone. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally didn't realize what was happening. Wow. And, and when you found out when you were 18, how did that make you feel? Yeah, kind of weird to say this, but I found it like almost kind of cool. <laughs> uh, I was like, wow, I got a story, you know? Um, yeah. And, 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 and which well, once again, fascinates me with, with, you know, all these shows on Netflix about like narcos and stuff like that. I mean, like I said, we weren't, the Philippines wasn't big on drugs by any means, but political power is what it's all about. And, and, but that life of, of, of having security guards and bodyguards surrounding you and stuff like that. And in your car and people bringing guns around, I thought it was just a normal thing. Huh. And, and I, you know, obviously now I watch it on TV or, or these shows and I was like, wow, that, it's not normal for everybody. <laughs> no, that's not normal for most people. <laughs> I know. That's, that's crazy. That's fascinating. And so how did the big sports dream come into the picture? I was an athlete of every possible sport, but I would always say I was a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. I, I played every sport. I was a co-captain of my basketball team. I was in our Taekwondo team as a black belt and I competed in tournaments. Um, I, I ran track, I threw the javelin and the shot put and the discus. I don't even know how I got involved in that. Uh, I think one of our, our, I think our, our coach was like, Hey, our, our basketball coach in high school was also our track coach. So he's like, Hey, uh, basketball season's over. You want to, you want to throw the javelin? <laughs> I'm like, why not? Uh, so I said, why not? Um, and, and, and then I was involved with so many things from student council to, um, to choir and, um, wow. and, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't really until like uh, growing up and my parents would always ask me, my, my, once again, I, I will commend my parents for doing an amazing job of always asking us about our future. I began having conversations on the round table with my father at the age of probably 14, 15, where we would sit at our breakfast table and my dad would like lean back, get a cigarette, light it put it down, relax and go. So what's your plan in five years? Where do you think you're going to be? What do you want to take for college? And this started like at the age of 14 or 15, that looking forward of five year, one year, even 10 year plans, you know, was something that I think my father did an amazing job of instilling um, that almost like goal oriented journey through life. 
That's very interesting. And I think it's very helpful, but at the same time, I feel like it could be uh, somewhat stressful or I, I don't know how, how, you, how would you felt, I, I'm wondering, because I had similar experience because just the system in Russia is such that you kind of, if you want to get into a um, top level mm -hmm. school, you have to make the decision at 14 what you want to study and you need to start preparing specifically for that school mm. or at least in my generation it was like that like we didn't yeah. have an sat test or whatever like a general you had to prepare very specifically now it's different but when i was growing up literally at 14 i knew which department of which school i was going to and i had to prepare very specifically for that and i had to make that decision at that age and um with very little to go off of in terms yeah, of no, experience absolutely. and understanding life and like yeah I, I, everybody wants to be a lawyer okay i'll be a lawyer i'm good i there's like two options like law or econ uh, economics Economic. yeah Economic. yeah and so because i wasn't so great at math i was better at like explaining things and learn studying history and like social stuff and i was like yeah, oh the law <laughs> might as well <laughs> and uh and uh you know well in my case it ended up not working out because the country kind of took a different turn and yeah i always say you know there's no point in being a lawyer in a country beyond law and so i took a whole bunch of different twists and turns there not unlike you but i feel like you have always had this direction yeah, we're very, I think, very lucky to, to have that as, as an innate sense. I mean, the first thing that I, I learned from my parents and my dad particularly was the, was the discipline required um, through martial arts. You know, I, I will never forget the picture of my father when his brown belt in Japan that he took when he was doing his MBA and he was taking karate there. And, um, you know, when my dad was a brown belt and I said, well, I'm going to be a black belt, you know, um, because my dad I'm a black belt too. Oh, really? Yeah. My dad yeah. had to leave Japan to go to America with my mom before before going through the black belt test. So, um, so you had to sacrifice that. But then it gave me. I started martial arts when I was like six years old, seven years old, and so uh, that gave me the discipline to kind of have a direction of where I want. And the first one was a picture of my dad with a brown belt. I said, "I'm going to get black belt," you know, and then um, and then learning about you know, stillness and meditation at the age of seven through martial arts and being fascinated with all the books my, my father always had of, of Shaolin monks and Bushido and, um, and all these Eastern philosophies, the art of war, Lao Tzu, all these things and understanding all of that at such a young age. Uh, and, and for me, I, I revere that. And I revere the discipline that martial arts gave me, not only from a physical standpoint, but particularly a mental and emotional standpoint. Definitely. I, I can relate for that to, the, to that also. I Similar. It's, it's another similarity. My my dad was always fascinated with karate. It was actually prohibited in Soviet Union. You couldn't really. Yeah, you couldn't do it because it was a you know foreign thing. Like we had our own um, martial arts like judo, uh, sorry, not judo, uh, sambo was like sambo. a Russian thing. Um, and then karate 
was kind of underground in the 80s and then in the mm. 90s it became legal and everything and my dad I remember he had this book that his friend who traveled to America brought him with with pictures of different like moves karate moves and my dad taught me because I'm the only child so I had to be both mm. a boy and a girl yeah and so so I had to do karate and then what you were saying about being introduced to meditation and uh, focus at a young age I think that's uh, a tremendous thing I'm surprised that with with uh, obviously Russia's tie with China that they didn't bring like Chinese martial arts. Uh, you know, growing up in the 90s, I don't think there was uh, the the countries were as close mm. in the 80s and 90s. There may be more of that now. Now, yeah. There's definitely Huawei everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. There's probably more. There's Huawei everywhere. <laughs> I, know. I understand. The 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 brand that that company that's like. All I know. Over I know. Place. It's all over the Philippines too. So I know. Yeah, I, I don't even know what they do, but they're everywhere. I, I know. They kind it's, of do it, all it's, kinds it's, of things. It's, it's challenging Apple, and it has WeChat and yeah, uh, and all that other stuff that really is. And all that other stuff is the is yeah. the important part, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But, but anyway, yeah. Um, well, but going back to, to figuring out the path, that's the most fascinating thing for me. It's like how people find their path and how they get to the dream. And I think you're one of the best examples I've ever actually encountered. Of, oh, of okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and- back to the first question that you asked me, I don't know even how we went around this circle here. Um, but but yeah, so I, I so I, if you you I remember your question was like, how did you get to where you wanted to be in the sports world? And for me, yeah. it was something I've always dreamed of. So at the age of eighteen, I, I had a I immediately had a vision in my head. I woke up one morning as somebody that played every sport. Uh, I, I said, if I can't, you know, and my, you know, and my parents were always like, I always wanted to what I wanted to be was uh, I was a, was a, a sports anchor. I always wanted to be a funny sports anchor, like an ESPN sports and make jokes about these, these, these things. But my father would say that's like, still you know, ahead. That's the, next I, I know. <laughs> my, my, my father would always say, you know, like, um, you know, there, there's no guarantees in jobs like that. People it's, it's one in a million because people, you know, you just have to talk and you have connections and you're not going to make good money in that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so it kind of discouraged me from doing that. And, and so as I was trying to realize, like, how can I be involved in sports and particularly basketball, because basketball is massive in the Philippines. You know, it, it's, it's, it's God, Manny Pacquiao, and then basketball. Um, and, uh, and so, and sometimes basketball supersedes God, but anyways, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that it was a dream for every Filipino kid to find themselves working in, in, in the basketball particularly. And so for me, you know, I said, well, what are my strengths? Uh, you know, I, I tried playing basketball. Clearly I'm, I don't think I'm worthy to be in the NBA by any means. Um, maybe I became a coach, but I don't really like the technical aspect of things. Well, what is my greatest strength? It's, it's the fact that I nurture people. It's the fact that I, I, I'm, I'm a caregiver, uh, that I'm a servant. And so how can I be a leader in an industry by being a servant, by being a nurturer? And that's through the medical world. And, you know, if, if, you know, it, it's, it's well known that most nurses and, and a lot of, in, in this country are all Filipino. It's because we like to take care of people. And so if I can't be the superstar, then I can be the star behind the superstar. 
the one that makes sure that these athletes, um, you know, get to their best potential. And so for me, that that took, you know, I, I was asked this question when I when I when I finally got my job in the NBA, and and I was asked the question, you know, what message do you have for kids back home in the Philippines? And this reporter flew from the Philippines to interview me, and out of nowhere, I, you know, I answered three things. I said, I said, you got to visualize it, you got to prepare the path, and you got to manifest it. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in on Thursday for part two of this conversation where Irwin tells his story of getting into the NBA. And believe me, it was not a straight shot. Find Irwin on Instagram and on Clubhouse. Join his rooms. Check out his website. Subscribe to his newsletter. Subscribe to our newsletter and never miss an event or an episode of the show. All contact info and links are in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who's dreaming of building a career in professional sports or someone who needs some encouragement searching for their path and setting their goals or someone who is like my husband, just beside themselves about the Knicks being on this crazy winning strike. Just click share and send them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. This is my country. My country. My country.